Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, David's suffering. Thank you that he wrote psalms, songs in the midst of his suffering, and thank you that they will strengthen us. Now, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us hear the word of God as it's given to us in Psalm 119, verses 49 to 54. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Remember the word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your word has revived me. The arrogant utterly deride me, yet I do not turn aside from your law. I have remembered your ordinances from of old, O Lord, and comfort myself. Burning indignation has seized me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes are my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now we all know, and it's been made very clear to us, that God afflicts those whom he loves. Oftentimes in teaching on fatherhood, we remind you as fathers to afflict your children. Um, Sometimes we call it discipline, we call it punishment, we call it spanking, we call it rebuke, we call it admonishment. But God's a good father. And he says in Hebrews that those whom he loves, he chastens. And certainly this uh, most recent, you know, what Jonathan Baker is going through, Our hearts go out to him. And how fearful he must be about his future. And how fearful his parents must be. And all of us who love him. And what a beautiful example to have Bob Kapowitz in here every week. And for us to realize how tenuous his life is. And this isn't just an affliction for Bob. This is an affliction for all of us who love him. You see little Mary Louise and Lexi and others. You see Charlie worshiping amongst us. And you realize how tenuous our lives are. And then you think that sickness and affliction are God's discipline of us. That they don't come to us from fate, you know. The, the, <laughs> Uh, you know, they don't, you know, they don't arise out of the dust from nowhere. And so <clears throat> many, many of the Psalms, the psalmist speaks of being afflicted. And this is the context for this part of Psalm 119. He's in affliction and he says, Remember the word to your servant. It's interesting that when I was preparing to preach this, um, I wrote out that uh, that's kind of an odd way of putting it. Remember 
the word to your servant. You know, it's like a, a, a going all around the bush trying to state the th- And so then I said, let me say it more directly. Uh, remind your servant of your word, right? <laughs> well, fortunately, this time I read a commentary. <laughs> I always do, but anyhow, I read the commentary, and I realized it's completely misunderstanding it, right? It's not that David is trying to get God to remind him of his words, God's words, but it's that David is trying to get God to remember the words he has spoken to David. Now that, too, is odd. God's omniscient, and since David is specifically speaking of God's promises and kindnesses, his promises of kindness to David, it seems ludicrous for David to think he has to remind God of this. But of course, this is how we are. Um, I was trying to think of how to phrase it this morning. And, you know, I thought of that expression. I'm dying, you know. I'm dying here, you know. Do you not see me dying here? And I think that that's similar to what David is doing with God. We're dying here. Remember your promises. Remember the word to your servant. This is often the case that the psalmist cry out to God to remember the words of the servant. Dave's worried that God has forgotten his promises and that God's abandoning him. And this David is a man after God's own heart. And it's this David who's fearful that God has abandoned him and won't remember the promises. So David prays, asking God to remember him and to remember his promises to David. In 1 Chronicles 17, we read, Now, O Lord, this is again David praying this, Now, O Lord, Yahweh, let the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house be established forever and do as you have spoken. There are many promises in Scripture to us, and maybe you, like I, or like me, or whichever it is, which is it? Like me. Maybe you, like me, have had God give you specific promises for yourself and your home. This was the beginning of my marriage in my home, that God actually did speak to me through God's word and said, this text is for you. And then trouble hits, and you look at these uh, promises that God has made to you generally in the word of God and specifically to you, and your heart cries out and you say, God, you promised. Remember your promises. There's nothing impious about this. There's nothing faithless. It does seem unlikely to us at times that God knows us and is able to keep us in his attention given how puny and insignificant we are. I was thinking about this in connection with our families. Why in a large family do some children always tell jokes, generally the youngest child, and others always pout, generally the middle child, 
and others always slam doors. I won't say which child that is. Generally, though, a boy and not a girl. (laughs) And others always set the table and clean up the dishes and clean the bathroom without being asked. Well, of course, these are the ways that children in a large family try to make sure that they're remembered. (laughs) You know? You know, remember me. And we're in a very large family, and it would be very easy to be convinced that God has forgotten us. And this is David's fear, and he cries out. He's fearful that he will be forgotten, that he'll be abandoned to his afflictions. He's suffering, and he wants God to keep his promises. Remember the word to your servant in which you have made me hope. And who was it who made David hope in his promises? It was God himself. God made David hope in his word. And this is even more reason for God to remember and keep his word. God spoke to David his word of hope. And so David is right to point this out to God as another reason for God to remember what he himself has said. Wise Solomon observed that hope deferred, hope put off or postponed, makes the heart grow sick. David's heart is sick. And it seems to him as if God has forgotten his promises of comfort and deliverance. And so he pleads with God. You're the one who made me these promises, causing me to hope in them. Would you please remember your word? Now, there's no question that David himself is remembering them. Verse 50, this is my comfort in my affliction, that your word has revived me. So what is his comfort? Well, we seek comfort or relief or forgetfulness in our affliction through a number of different ways, right? David says, this is my comfort in my affliction, that your word has revived me. But let's, let's be honest here and admit that uh, generally we either do this late or never, which is to seek our comfort in the word of God. We have a whole bunch of ways of comforting ourselves, right? A lot of people comfort themselves through golf, through drugs, through booze. People read novels, watch, binge watch. A lot of people use social media, Instagram. A lot of people use food. We seek comfort and relief in our affliction through also people. And oftentimes people are our attempt to escape turning to God and his word. We need to turn our eyes to God who abides ever the same and to God who is a friend that stays closer than any brother. Uh, when I was thinking about how often I will go to Mary Lee for comfort, and, and one, of the, one of the things that's an indication that I'm seeking comfort from her, given the uh, defects, the sins in my character, is that I will complain, okay? <laughs> Why I think comfort, complaining will comfort me, I don't know. That's part of my perversity. But I was thinking about Jesus, And I was thinking about how Jesus would pray. You remember that? 
I mean, he was just praying all the time. That's the positive, and we say we need to pray, and that's true. We need to go to God. We need to go to his word. We need to pray his word. That's what we're doing this morning by going to this psalm. But there's another side to this, which is that even the best wife given to you by God to help you is only a man. And I don't mean a male man. I mean the best wife yet remains a product of the fall. And I remember Jesus at a time of his great testing. In John 2, we read that when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, you remember what it says here, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them. For he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. If we're going to be uh, wise and turn to God and to his word for our comfort, it's not sufficient for us to think of his goodness. We must also think of man's badness. Uh, We must not depend upon man for things that God himself must give us. And here it clearly says that Jesus guarded himself against being harmed by trusting in man. And why did he do that? Well, he knew what was in us. (laughs) Which I, 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 I'm laughing about because I know it's certainly true of me. Changeable, fickle, vacillating, let alone just plain evil. And so David is wise and he goes to God. Why? Because God's dependable. Is God dependable? Well, the verse before David says, remember, You know, and so we look at the beautiful weakness of David, that he knows the right place to go, and then he worries that going to that right place is not going to give him what was promised and what he needs. David testifies to God that his word, God's word that is, has revived him. And this is David's comfort in the midst of his affliction. Let me read a little bit from Calvin here. Calvin says, during his troubles and anxieties, David didn't search after flaky, vain consolations, comforts, as the world usually does. He did not look for something just to take the edge off his miseries, to mitigate his miseries. And if any allurements tickle their fancy, Calvin says, any entertainment, strikes us as interesting, then we use this as a remedy to take the edge off of our sorrows. But on the contrary, the prophet says he was satisfied with the word of God itself. Verse 50, this is my comfort and my affliction that your word has revived me. And notice it revived him. It doesn't say it sustained him, but it revived him. It restored him. It brought him back to life. 
Now then, we get negative again in verse 51. What added to David's affliction, increasing his suffering? Well, it says, the arrogant utterly deride me. Now, arrogant is the conceited of the proud. These were David's tormentors. And how did they torment him in the midst of his afflictions? Well, they derided him, which is to say they made fun of him and they mocked him. Now, we have to note a few things here, okay? First, it is arrogance or pride that has blinded these men to the truth of God and to the truth of his servant David. Pride does that. It blinds us so that we go on in our sin and make fun of other men's righteousness. We are so very sure of ourselves, and this is not because we should be sure of ourselves, but this is because of our pride. Let me say it again, pride blinds a man. And so the question is, are you proud? I was talking to Max, Pastor Max, the other day, and he was talking about uh, dealing with men who are absolutely certain that they're right. And he was telling of an episode where uh, one man looked at another man in our church, and he said to the other man, you're blind. And I know you're blind because I have that same blindness. And it was such a sweet moment when these two men could look at each other and be helped by each other by one confessing to the other, I have your same blindness. But our pride usually doesn't allow us to confess to the other man, I have your blindness, you know. Let alone that other man looking at you and saying, yeah, I think you do. Okay, I get it. Pride blinds a man. Are you proud? Do you simply assume that you are right? Assuming you're right, do you look down on others even to the point of mocking them? There are many souls, both men and women, who formally listened to God's word here in this church and prayed and sang with us in worship, who now mock us in court. Okay? We shouldn't be so caught up in the cosmic nature of the book of Psalms that we fail to see that these things go on today. There are many souls, both men and women, who formerly listened to God's word here in this church and prayed and sang with us in worship, who now mock us in court and mock us now in our suffering. And let this be a warning to us. Pride blinds a man. Pride pushes a man down the path of actually getting into the degradation of tormenting the godly. This is David's testimony here. So the first thing to see here is the warning about pride. The second thing is that many godly souls find it too painful to recognize and fight this derision that is heaped upon them. And so they succumb to it, and they cease their godliness. 
discouraged and unwilling to fight, they cease praying, they cease singing, they cease fellowshipping, they cease reading and meditating on God's word. We've had several cases in this church where the spouse of somebody has tormented them for their godliness. The spouse has mocked them for their humility and meekness under the preaching of the word. The spouse has mocked the elders of this church in front of the family. The spouse has tried to get their husband or wife to come to a different church where the word of God is soft and and, and, and uh, uh, inane, as Rita Cuffey would say, it's a helpful thought for the week, okay? And as the elders would work with these individuals, the elders would warn them, you must recognize the wickedness of your spouse and the influence it's having on your children. Well, of course, uh, it's scandalous to say such things and to make such warnings because... Everybody thinks that the, the, the family and blood comes before the church and baptism in the Lord's Supper in the kingdom of heaven. And so what happens in these situations is the godly spouse is caught in between the mocking and the derision of their husband or wife and the meekness and humility of the church of Jesus Christ and her worship. This is precisely where David is. He's in between derision and God. And David says what? What did David actually say? Well, David says this. David says, I'm sorry, I'm, I've lost my, David says this. He says, the arrogant utterly deride me, yet I do not turn aside from your law. And so all of us regularly in our lives as we follow God are put in a place where we have to choose between the mockery of God, his law, his word, his people, his church, his elders, or faithfulness and God and his word. And a lot of us do our best to put blinders on our eyes and to not recognize and name the utter derision of the wicked, of us and our commitments. And listen, what you have to understand is, if this is the position that you want to find yourself in, if you want to go to Thanksgiving dinner with your relatives and act as if you don't know that they're attacking God and his church and his word, and that they're attacking your faith, you will give in. There's a couple who was in this church for many, many years. And all the time they were here, there was a sustained attack upon the church of Jesus Christ by their relatives. And it just was constant. And they're not here anymore. And this is what happens when we refuse to recognize the utter derision of God and his word by the people that we love, let alone our neighbors, the people we work with. Um, if you refuse to name those deriding the godly, if you refuse to name them the arrogant, you will give in and you will give up. 
You must see arrogance and pride. You must recognize it. You must name it. You must condemn it, even and especially among your neighbors, friends, and family members, among those who try to discourage you from joining God's people in worship and song and fellowship and prayer. Either you will fight or you will give in. You can't listen to the taunts of the wicked and the promises of God, the taunts of the wicked, the promises of God, and hang halfway between in your indecision and desire not to appear defensive and not to be judgmental and and not to say that yours is the only true church. All these ways that people keep us from declaring our allegiance and being zealous. There's nothing like that in David here. The arrogant utterly deride me. Yet I do not turn aside from your law. The enemy isn't going gentle on you, and so you better not go gentle on the enemy. David has set his face like flint even against his own wife as she utterly derides him. You all remember this, right? You remember David's just completely given in to worshiping God. He's coming into Jerusalem, right? Then he goes home to bless his house. And he's in like seventh heaven. He's in ecstasy worshiping God in song. And right then his wife Michael hits him. Okay, and she says to him, when David returned to bless his household, 2 Samuel 6, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servant's maids as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. So this is the response of David's wife to his zealous worship of God. Okay, And so David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. And then his response, he says, therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will be more lightly esteemed than this and will be humble in my own eyes. You know, if it's the arrogance that causes them to utterly denigrate and despise the God way. It's also our pride that keeps us from continuing to worship as they're deriding us and making fun of us. Pride is a very dangerous thing. David says, I'll celebrate before the world. I'll be more lightly esteemed than this, and I will be humble in my own eyes. David continues, verse 52, I have remembered your ordinances from of old, O Lord, and comfort myself. Now, first, just a comment about that, comfort myself. It does seem a little bit weird, doesn't it? I, I, think, I think I'll comfort myself. <laughs> and yet, we do berate ourselves, and we do guilt ourselves, and we do fear ourselves, and we do, we do a lot of things to ourselves. David comforts himself, okay? In other words, this is... Uh, This is the discipline that David gives himself to in order to be comforted. Now, what is it? Well, he says in the first part of the verse, I have remembered your ordinances from of old, O Lord. 
Now, what are these ordinances? Well, they're God's judgments. And so specifically, uh, the ordinances that he remembers in order to comfort himself are the records written down in Scripture of how God has dealt with man. They include the judgments, they include the blessings and the rescues. So, of course, Israel remembers God bringing them up out of Egypt in their slavery. This is an ordinance of God, a judgment of God, and it's a positive one for God's people. But they would also remember, you remember in Psalm 73, he's looking at all the rich and the proud, and he says, and then I remembered their fate. You've put them on a slippery slope. And so we, again, must not think that we can live in the positive You know, we always want to say God's yes without his no. We always want to be comforted by his blessings and not look at his judgments. David is comforted by God's judgments and his blessings. And he says, I've remembered your ordinances, what? From of old. Now, this really gets us. Because we have such conceit about being modern and progressed and evolved. We just can't help but despise the elderly. Now, come on, cop to it. It's true. We can't help but despise everything old except maybe paintings and, and, and novels. You know, but other than that, things that are old are just in the way. Wasn't there a band called Old and in the Way, I think? Nobody knows. All right, I think there was. Anyhow, David says that it is particularly the ordinances from of old that he remembers and comforts himself with. Now, if I were to choose one of God's judgments from of old that nobody but nobody is comforting themselves with anymore, and our language is proof of this, it would be Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, It used to be for for a couple of thousand of years, we would refer to the sin that characterized that night on the town square where they wanted to rape the men of God, the men of Sodom. We would characterize that with the name. We would say sodomy. But this is a word that isn't used anymore, and it's not used anymore just because we're trying to be acceptable. It's not used anymore because none of us are comforting ourselves in the midst of the sexual debauchery that we live in. None of us are comforting ourselves as we watch everyone attack God's law and deride it, mock it, make fun of it. None of us are comforting ourselves by remembering that God burned the men of Sodom up. I mean, to even suggest such a thing makes us feel whore. David says, I have remembered your ordinances from of old. O Lord, and comfort myself. This is one of God's judgments from of old that should be a great comfort to us right now in the riot of rebellion and uh, antagonism and mockery that God's law against homosexuality is suffering everywhere we go today, everything we watch, every conversation we're in. And if you think that you can sustain your faith in the midst of such an attack 
upon God by just thinking nice things about pussycats. You know what I'm saying? In other words, thinking that, well, you know, we should hate, hate the, let's see now, we should hate the, um, we should look, we should, uh, how's that go now? Oh yeah, I remember. We should love the sinner and love the sin. No, wait, wait. It's love, right? Isn't it? It's love. Love this. Love the. Love the sin and love the. No, 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 no. And of course, that's about as close as we ever get to loving the sinner and hating the sin. You know, we don't hate anything. We're just gospel people. You know what I'm saying? Listen, you cannot sustain the derision and the mockery and the hatred for God that you live in the midst of by simply thinking about velveteen rabbits and pussycats and loving the sinner. You have to meditate on Sodom. You have to see God's judgments. And if you think that because they're old, they don't matter, remember what is said in 1 Corinthians 10, beginning with verse 7, where the Apostle Paul writes... Speaking about the Israelites in the wilderness, he says, Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. So the Christians in the church are being reminded of a day when, because of the sin, 23,000 of them were killed by God. Okay? Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the servants. The Christians are being reminded about the snakes killing people and God sent the snakes to his people. Nor grumble. Oh my goodness, grumble. I mean, who can, you know, who can grumble? I mean, that's so insignificant, you know. And, and he says, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And then this sentence, he says, Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written down for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. This is what David is saying here. When he says, I have remembered your ordinances, I have remembered your judgments, O Lord, and comfort myself. Jesus never gave promises without warnings. And so we have to see David is able to maintain hope in the midst of his affliction by remembering negative punishment, judgments, and death and promises in eternal life. And he lived between those things. He continues, verse 53, burning indignation has seized me because of the wicked who forsake your your law. You know, I'm only preaching to one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and there's some guys up there, nine, ten, but I can't see them up there. And um, <laughs> well,
I've been in lots of hospital rooms and funeral homes, visitations, pastor's offices, counseling, phone counsels. And I can tell you that uh, the church in this fat, complacent, rich country we live in has no patience whatsoever for God's now. None. You don't get a book published by writing about God's now. Sermons are devoid of the fall and original sin. Nobody, but nobody believes that it is comforting to remember God's wrath and his judgment. We do not believe this. And so what I see in the church today is the absence of any indignation. <laughs> you know, None of us are indignant. As a matter of fact, I think if we hadn't just heard it in the text here, we would say that indignation is a sin. You know, we would say that you can't be indignant when you see yourself as you are, that you're a sinner. And how, how can you be indignant against sin when you see how deep sin goes in yourself? And again, the principle here is, if we will not hate what God hates, we will not love what God loves. It is not sufficient to say yes. It is not sufficient to embrace the good. We must hate the bad. You know, there's a, I shouldn't, eh. you know, there's a whole movement today being promoted among conservative reform people that, that what we need to do is we need to give ourselves to what is good and true and beautiful or what is beautiful and true and good or is, am I getting that triad right? Is it the good, the true and the beautiful or the, come on, you guys know it. What is it? Okay, the good, the true, and the beautiful. And a whole movement of education is built up around us. The good, the true, and the beautiful! You know? And that's so sweet that we can give ourselves to the good and the true and the beautiful. I'll have popcorn, and I'll have candy, and I'll have ice cream. Now, of course, I'm not putting down the good and the true and the beautiful. But isn't it wonderful? It reminds me of back in the 70s when the hot thing back then, the hip thing, the cool thing, was what was known as friendship evangelism. You know, remember that, David? <laughs> and my dad wrote a column mocking it. Because it was worth mocking. The idea that if you smile broadly enough and sincerely enough, the pagans will look at you and say, why why are you smiling so broadly and sweetly? And then you can open up the smile of God. This is uh, similar to this uh, celebrity pastor recently who said, you don't need to tell people their sins. We don't need to tell people their sins. And yet look at what David says here. Burning indignation has, has seized me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Now, may I remind you that this is in the middle of a section where David is explaining how he comforts himself and is comforted. 
And thus, may I remind you that this is our model today for being comforted. It is a mark of godliness that we demonstrate indignation at the attack upon God and his character and his life. But I, but I went lightly with what I just said. We shouldn't just give ourselves to it. What David actually says is burning indignation. That's a little bit different than indignation. Uh, that's burning indignation. And notice that it doesn't say that David himself was indignant. It says that he was what? It says he was seized with burning indignation. Now I have to tell you that there are many things I try to avoid thinking about because they're so awful, okay? There are many wickednesses that I just find I have to not think about because if I think about them, I'll be seized with burning indignation. And, I, you know, I really don't want to be seized with burning indignation, right? Do any of us want to be seized with burning indignation? But, you know, in the wicked day that we live, I don't know that there's any other way for our hearts to be set on pilgrimage. I don't know there's any other way for us to realize this is not our home. How are we going to embrace, I'm just a poor wayfaring stranger, a traveling through this world of woe. Every time at a graveside we say, uh, in the midst of life we live in death, I always think as I repeat those words, no we don't, (laughs) no we don't. This is an aberration. This is abnormal, and let's get it over with quickly. And then, in the midst of life, we live in death. And of whom may we seek for relief? But of thou, O Lord, who for our sins are justly displeased. And so David says, burning indignation has seized me because of the wicked who forsake your law. David is testifying to God that he has been seized by this burning emotion. He is almost a passive victim bound in its clutches. Well, what's the option? Well, the other option is others who defend their gentleness and their quiet and their reasoned approaches to this rebellion against God's law all around us. They they themselves are superior to David because They resist any such thing as a burning indignation seizing them. They posture themselves halfway between zeal for God and posing to the world as a a reasonable Christian. Do you see this? John Calvin has our number today. Those of us who would prefer to uh, present ourselves to the world as lacking indignation... And, and not being in its clutches and not burning with it, but rather presenting a soft acceptance of them. And John Calvin says this, he says, many derive flimsy and 
frivolous pretext for it from the degeneracy of the age. In other words, many try to have a, a very flimsy sort of approach to the wickedness of the age. And they justify it this way. They say as if they have to howl while they live among wolves. <laughs> we live among wolves, so... Arr! You know, we have to sort of try to at least sound like them. Verse 54. Your statutes are my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. And of course, it was reading this verse that caused me to decide to preach on it today. I mean, how can you separate? Um, how can you separate music from this church? How can you separate music from the Spades? How could Don live without singing? I remember many times talking to Adam about his marriage and saying to him, Adam. God gave you a songbird, <laughs> you know. What a beautiful gift. And then we think about how God has given us so many songbirds. As a matter of fact, I would almost say that that's the chief characteristic culturally of this church is I've never heard of a church that has been given so many songbirds. Filled with singers and musicians. I don't know how I would preach without the band and the musicians. I know my preaching has completely changed once I have had men who are zealous for song in the midst of us and leading us. I'll never forget, about 25 years ago, had a wonderful church in Wisconsin. We were there for almost nine years. We left and went into the PCA, then moved right away here and went into a church that was filled with trouble. Four years later, I resigned from that pulpit. And right after I resigned, there was a well-known uh, choir director, well, a professor of choral music at IU who was retiring. And so his final two years, he first did a performance, a grand performance of uh, St. John's Passion by Bach, and then St. Matthew's. And I got to go to that. It was down in our hall. And I love St. Matthew's Passion. Andrew Dion loves St. John's. I can't remember. Anthony, I think, is St. Matthew's. <laughs> I don't know which you are, but everybody has one or the other they love. I love St. Matthew's. And uh, I did not know what was going to happen. Uh, there was a man who had mocked and lied about me and tormented me at, in my preaching at my former church. And he was up, up here in the balcony looking down. And that was not my happy spot. But then in the middle of St. Matthew's Passion, Dawn got up. And she sang an aria. And I'm sorry, I did not think beforehand to give you the words for it, but oh, 
It was such a tender piece of scripture. And my heart was comforted. Wonderfully comforted. Listen, we didn't discover music. God invented it. And it is an evil day in the church when people are trying to suppress it and thinking they're being pious in doing that. We are to sing a new song. We are to give expression to the zeal of our hearts for the kingdom of heaven by writing new music. This is essential to the worship of God's people. And so this is how this stanza ends. It says... David says, your statutes are my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. And so David admits he's on pilgrimage. Are you on pilgrimage? Am I on pilgrimage? Or have we made ourselves comfortable and permanent here? You know? Are we on pilgrimage? You remember Paul and Silas in the jail in Philippi. You remember at night? It says, in jail, it was while they were sinking that God smashed the place up and broke them loose. And you remember, it says that in jail they were singing, and that as they sang, the other men in the jail prison with them listened to them. And so listen, kids at home, yesterday I was in the car, and I rarely listen to music anymore in the car, but I decided to listen to music And so I pressed the button, and on came The Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd. I'll see you on the dark side of the moon. Whoa! And when the... And I love that piece of music. But I have made a promise to God that I will not listen to it. But I love it. And so I listen to it. A few more seconds of it. And then I turned it off. Now why? Guard your hearts with music. Parents, guard your children with music. Music is powerful. And when we sing about the dark side of the moon and fatalism, trust me, it has as much of an influence on us as when we sing the joy of the Lord. So let's pray. Father, we pray that you will set our hearts on pilgrimage. We pray that you will give us new songs. We pray that you will fill your church with musicians and poets like David. And Father, we pray that you will use our affections to move us closer to you and to heaven, which is our true home. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.